This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you for everyone around the world who tunes in. I appreciate you and this beautiful audience and the Patreons. Today's guest is a friend and also an inspiration. She and her husband, Chris, co-founded One Generation Away. It's such an honor to welcome to the family, Miss Elaine Whitney. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. How did you and Chris even end up in Nashville? What's the story behind that? Let's see. 18 years ago, we just knew that we felt that God really pressed on our heart to start a church. We came to, we felt like it was Nashville. So we we would come to Franklin and just walk around and just pray and walk the land actually for about seven years until we moved here. Um, we just knew that that's what we needed to do. And so started a church and then out of the church came the ministry. And how did you guys come to the idea, hey, let's just feed people, which is so fundamental, profound, and basic, but yet without food, what what else can you do? That's so true. Well, it was funny because one day my husband was just praying and he got this this phrase one generation away and he didn't really know what to do with it. And so he just saved a domain. So anyway, at that point, we um, had a friend who asked us if we'd like to pick up food from Whole Foods and bring it to, you know, take it and give it out to people. And we're like, sure, because he said he doesn't do that in his uh, organization. So we said, sure, we'll do it. So we took our car and we would just go and pick up food. And you couldn't even see my head. <laughs> Literally, there was so much food that um, you couldn't even see me. So anyway, we would go into neighborhoods in need and just open the door and just let them shop for whatever they needed. So those are some humble beginnings. Very much so. And you eventually moved away from the church, right? Did you guys just kind of come to the conclusion that the your real ministry was just this food a service thing rather than actually a building? Yeah, we did actually. Um, the the food ministry just got so big that we just had to step down from the church. That was about four years ago. Um, so yeah, we've been doing this. I mean, we've been doing this for you know ten years. This is our ten year anniversary, actually. All right. So how did it grow? How did it grow from such humble beginnings into what were the early stages like? Wow. Well, the early stages was um, you know at first we were just doing mobile food pantries because we didn't really have a warehouse. So we would just purchase food, a semi-truck full, and go to a parking lot and just distribute it to people that were in line and that needed food. And we don't ask any questions. You know, the only thing that we ask, is there anything we can pray with you about? Because we know, we all know that there's more need than just food. So that's kind of how it started. And then um, it just kept growing and growing and growing from there. Um, And then in 2013, we were at the beach actually in October at the beginning, my husband had um, an insurance practice in St. Louis. So that was kind of paying the bills, you know, when we were all here for the, through the church and everything, he would go back every two weeks. And so it was just, I could see him just being so stretched. So I, uh, we were at the beach in October and I was in the ocean. I was just crying, which is so funny because who cries in the ocean? And Chris comes out there. He's like, what is going on? And I said, I feel like God's just asking us, when are we going to trust him? And I felt like at that moment that God was telling me that we needed to lay down the insurance business and truly trust him with one gym. 
and wherever he takes us. And so we, November 1st, we did that and we got a, our first warehouse, which was really tiny, but we were, we loved it. It was great. And the, it was like $2,000 a month, you know? So anyway, so November 1st, we were so excited to have that. Well, then um, December 31st, Chris was diagnosed with stage three uh, throat, tongue, and lymph node cancer. And that just rocked my world because I'm like, God, you told me to trust you, you know, and here we are trusting you, but yet he gets cancer. And it was just, we were just, um, it was a long year, but, but miraculously he, you know, there's supposed to be so many other things that happen with that. And he had no side effects at all. Um, and you know, he was supposed to lose 40 pounds and he ended up gaining four. So it was just great. God was just uh, so faithful through it. And, so then after that, um, it really, you know, took off again. So that's kind of where we were. And then, um, so we grew over hundred percent in the, in during COVID. So that was a little crazy. Go back to the cancer. I know you made it sound like, oh yeah. And that happened. But I mean, <laughs> when you found out there's no way you weren't afraid, this is the love of your life. What went through your heart that night when you guys got the news or for you, I mean, you could have been a widow. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, for the first two weeks, that's what you're thinking because they didn't do even a PET scan. Um, to that's only where it was, or was it all over his body or what, you know? So for two weeks, it was like, I hate to say it, but it's true. You're thinking your mind goes places where it shouldn't go. And, um, I literally was thinking, what am I going to do? I mean, I got to bury him, you know? And it was just like crazy. I'd wake up in the mornings and I would go, oh my gosh, Chris, I had the horrible nightmare. And I went, oh my gosh, no, it's the truth. <laughs> we are living this. It is reality. And oh, it was just horrible. It was scary. I know it was funny because um, when he came out, when the doctor came out after doing the biopsy, he goes, hey, you know, come around here. And I thought, okay, that's not good because we've just been through the hospital so much. Our middle donor had spina bifida. So we've known like when the doctors tell you to come over here, you know, so my oldest daughter was with me and the doctor said, Hey, he goes, as soon as I got in there, I knew it was cancer. And my daughter just hit the floor crying. And, and what had happened was just, um, two years before we had moved, my mom died of uh, pancreatic cancer. So that's what she was thinking. You know, as soon as you hear the C word, you know, you're thinking, Oh my gosh, nobody lives through that, you know? So it was crazy because I looked at that doctor and I was like, all right. I said, well, what are we going to do now? And my daughter was like, how did you have that strength? And I said, because my thought was, is he's not dying on me. So what are we going to do to keep him here? So that's kind of, um, that was my attitude. It was like, God just gave me such strength. Um, and I knew that just to be a support for him. So I had, I was working uh, part-time and I took a sabbatical from that and um, just stayed with him day to day, um, went to every doctor's appointment, every radiation appointment. And it was like three months of uh, radiation. And then he was allergic to the chemo. So, you know, it was just a whole ordeal um, that we went through, but that's so good. I mean, literally brought him through that without any side effects. Like you'd never know it. He didn't have any sores down his throat. He was supposed to lose his salivary glands, his taste buds, um, lose 40 pounds. And like I said, he gained four. He didn't have any um, sores down his throat. He just had to kind of reteach himself how to swallow all over again. He was amazing. He never once complained. 
I would be like, if that is me, I'd probably be like, you know, dying over here. Help me, help me. And he was just so kind through the whole thing and just never complained. I was like, I knew he was amazing. But after that, I'm like, dang, like, that's what I need to live up to. Did you ever sneak away, though, and just cry since you had to be the strong one for everybody? Yeah, I did. You know, he was doing so well. Uh, through everything. And, um, you know, first they give you steroids. I don't know if you know that, but they give you a big, huge bag of steroids before they give you the chemo. So we kind of had it down to rhythm. He would, it would get that on Monday and he would get just about feeling better on Friday. And then we'd have to go back Monday and start it all over again. So, um, yeah, you kind of knew the cycles of that, but yes, I had my time of crying for sure. Does your mom ever come to you? In, in the dreams or anything like that. I mean, that's hard to lose. I lost my parents, both of them, the last couple of years. And I miss them every day. I dream about them, though, where I, I hang and we cry and talk. I do most of the crying and then I wake up. I miss them, but they come to me or I'll feel them around me. Or when I was thinking of my mom on her birthday, all of a sudden a cardinal just flew right into the garage and landed on the washing machine and like four feet away from me and stared at me. And I thought, oh, mom, I love you, mom. How about your mom? I feel the same way. I feel like she's always here. Don't make me start crying though, Paul, because I will start crying. <laughs> you can cry in the podcast. I cry all the time. Even though she's been gone for 20 years that I have to tell is, you know, I was so sad when um, my mom is not here to see my grandchildren. That was really hard. And then my daughter said, you're not going to believe what happened. My grandson, our oldest grandson at the time, was 10. I mean, I'm sorry, he was two years old. She had this picture of my mom and dad. And my mom had died when my daughter was in uh, eighth grade. So she was a teenager, you know, a young teenager. But that's when she had died. And so once she got married, you know, moved to Nashville and to Franklin, and then she, you know, got married and had her first son. And he was two years old. And she had this picture of my mom and dad on a, um, on the wall. And it was like of their wedding. And he knew my dad because my dad was still alive at the time. And he would say, Papa. And and then Lauren goes, uh, yeah, this is Nana. And this is your great grandmother. And he goes, I know Nana. He goes, she comes every night and gives. This. And I just like lost it. <laughs> it was so it was just it was awesome. So she visited him every night and kissed him. Yes. <laughs> And he's like, I know her. And I was like, wow. So it really helped me to know that she is with me. She died when she was 62. So young. The older I get, the younger that is. And I don't know about you, but I think of him every day. I never stop missing him. And I kind of have resigned to myself to the fact that I'm, I'm, I don't think I'll ever breathe and not miss them in some way. I agree. I agree. My dad died four years ago of a heart attack. So, yeah, I miss them both. But I do feel like they're with me. Don't you feel like your life has something that many people find elusive, that there's a beautiful purpose to it beyond your family, that you're you're the go-between where I feel like I'm not religious, but I love the basic teachings of Jesus, feed the hungry. And you're doing that. Don't you feel like, and I had the privilege to come to one of your events or giveaways and it wasn't more, but I got to tell anybody who has a chance, go. It was the happiest two hours I've ever been around. People were singing, smiling, especially the people handing food off and the people who were receiving the food. 
don't you feel like when you are involved with all this or even every day, there is a beautiful, basic primal purpose, but also a higher purpose. And that kind of gives our lives meaning. For sure. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And like you said, it's not really religious. It's more of a relationship that we have. Right. And um, so it is a very rewarding um, calling that God has called us to um, just to help meet the needs of people, because um, I know exactly what they were going through. You know, some people say, oh, I know what you're going through. You don't really until you walk in those people's shoes. Right. So um, about our our middle daughter's 32 and she was born with spina bifida, which she's had 17 surgeries. And during that time, at the same time she was born, Chris lost his job. He, at the time he was in construction. So we just lost everything. We had the medical bills were so expensive. So, um, so at the time I was standing in the line getting food and never knew when you, when I look back at that, I'm like, wow, I never knew then that I would be doing this now. It's just like a full circle that is so easy now to be able to tell people that it's just a season. You will get through this, you know, and, and you can't really say that unless you've been there because the shame that you feel, not that we don't put shame on anybody. We don't ask any questions. We don't ask them, you know, how, um, you know, what they do, how much they make, like none of that, or, you know, show me this or show me your, you know, social security card or show me your license. We don't ask any questions. Whoever is in our line, it's humbling enough to be in a line. We don't need to put shame or anything on them. We just want to bring them hope, honor, and dignity. So, but it's great to see them and to share that, you know, it's just a season. You will get through this. And people are just so gracious. You have been there. And did you feel a lot of shame when you're in that line, like you were a failure somehow? Oh, yes, for sure. But you know, what's sad is the people weren't giving hope. They were just kind of putting the shame even back on you, even more than you already had. And I just, I just didn't like that at all. I didn't like that feeling because, you know, here we were, it was, um, it wasn't generational poverty. It was an actual, you know, something that just had happened. And I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're generational or went through a season like we did or whatever it is, maybe you've lost your job or, you know, nobody should put shame on anyone because they're just trying to get through a day and, um, and it was making it day to day and feeding our kids. We had three, uh, two children. And, um, and it was, I was so grateful for the food stamps and the food lines that, that we were able to get, because that's really what kept our children alive and us as well. Um, so, and then there was another time I remember that, um, that during that time we had, Chris had gotten a job and we had gotten better on our feet. It's like, okay, you, you're still getting this for another year, like our food stamps. And, and, and I'm like, no, like that's not right. You know, because I just, I don't know, Chris and I always just want to do the right thing. Right. So, um, and just be on the up and up and, and just, that's how we, um, just live with ourselves and knowing that we're not taking advantage of anybody else. And, um, so I just called them and we were like, no, we don't need them, but you know, it was great to have that. But then you think how many times of people just working that system, you know? So, but anyway, we were just so grateful to be out of that season. So now it's just easier to, um, not easy, but you know what those people are going through, truly know what they're going through. And if somebody would have come up to me and asked me, is there anything I can pray with you about? I think I would have just fallen apart because you feel so unseen. 
And then when you're in that line, you have the shame and the humility and, and then for somebody to come and ask them that, wow, that's just pretty powerful to me. And that's, that's um, really, I mean, I, I can, we can relate to that because we have been there. And food insecurity is epidemic in America. Do you have any idea of the numbers? I keep hearing these crazy numbers. Yeah, it's like one in um, six children do not know where their next meal is coming from. And one in seven of the population do not know where their next meal is coming from. That's true in insecurity. When, when that child goes to school, and we have this happening here in Franklin, Tennessee, um, children will go to school on a Friday and not even eat again until Monday when they come back to school. And there's 42% of those children in one of the downtown Franklin, which Williamson County is one of the, the wealthiest counties in America, um, the top one of the top 10. And um, but yet you still have children that are still hungry. There's 42% of those children that are on assisted lunches. So that's pretty powerful. And, and, you know, you don't think about that, or I didn't think about that until, well, Chris, and I always do, but, you know, some people just really don't, don't understand that until one time this person said that they um, had a child that told them the story of, um, of a friend of theirs that the child got the fuel bags, which we love the fuel bags, right? That feeds the children you know, through the weekend, they put, um, people put fuel bags together, like, and put them in their backpacks, you know, and, um, but they said this child was actually going and burying his fuel bag in the backyard. So he would be able to eat because the whole family was taking all that food from him. And that just speaks volumes. So what we've been doing is, um, feeding children, school kids through the weekend. So we would give them like a 30, 25 to a 30 pound uh, bag of food. And the, the counselors, the school counselors, which are amazing, they know exactly which families need the help. So they would come to our warehouse, pick up this stuff. And if they were going straight to, to the families, we would add all kinds of stuff, you know, meats or whatever that we had at the time. Sometimes we had flowers. And so, um, you know, just to give them, be able for to feed their family, it was just like a sustainable, um, you know, items that were non-perishables that would just uh, help sustain them, you know, with pasta and rice and you know, cereal and that kind of stuff. But that's what we, um, we've been doing. And so it was interesting because we were doing like 40 bags of those a week uh, before COVID. And then COVID happened and the school called us, the school district called us to help them. We went from 40 bags a week to four, I mean, I'm sorry, to 600 bags a week. So can you imagine that? So needless to say, did our regular distributions increase, but also the, you know, those bags that we could help. And we were just so honored that they called us to help. And so we would get the food bags to them and then they would go to the schools and hand them out, which was really um, just, it was a great time for, for everybody to know that they're going to be fed. What does it say about us as a country and as a humanity that we let so many kids go hungry and like Williamson County is so rich and yet there are so many kids that won't eat this weekend. Yeah, that's really sad because a lot of people don't even know it. Like I know in Williamson County, even though people might've been here all their life, they still don't know that there's hungry people here. I mean, we still have people in Williamson County that don't even have running water yet, which is so unfathomable. I mean, that's just crazy to me. Um, but yeah, you know, it's really sad because there's so much food all over the world. The United States specifically has so much food, so much waste 
that um, there's enough food to feed everybody. No one should be going to bed hungry at all. Is it just this a collective selfishness rather than a sense of love and community? You know, I don't know. There used to be where, you know, I think restaurants and people like that would be scared because they could have been sued, you know. But evidently there's a law that had just passed, um, I, I don't know how many years ago, um, but it seems like it was about five or six years ago that they will not get sued. So what we started doing as one gen, you know, not only do we do the food um, trucks and the distributions every Saturday and the fuel bag, I mean, the uh, the bags of groceries for the families, but we also rescue food. I know that sounds really crazy, but kind of like how we started when I was talking about we were in that car, in our car, you know, we would go to Whole Foods and we go all over to grocery stores, to big box stores, you know, Costco and Whole Foods and, you know, Fresh Market, like all these kind of places. And um, six days a week, our guys are out picking up food that not only was getting ready to go bad, like maybe they had a three-day life, uh, a shelf life still, but also the food that somebody at a grocery store might have mismarked and we'll get like the whole palette or like, you know, different things like they love their green bananas. So if they go ripe and yellow, we get them, you know, which is amazing because we get to take all this fresh fruits and vegetables to all these people in need all over Middle Tennessee at six days a week. So that is, um, so I, I feel like if we could do that around the country, which our heart is to replicate one gen around the country, because we feel like it should be replicable. Um, and then think of all of those people that, you know, to me and my husband's dream to begin with is just, you know, feeding a million people, you know, but that would be of course over a million people, but just think of all the people, there wouldn't be food insecurity. There wouldn't be people going hungry that or, or, you know, if people lost their job, there's food available for them or whatever they're going through in their circumstance that they would, you know, be able to have food and not have to worry about buying food so they could buy their medicine. Um, Cause we've had that so often, or, you know, they could pay a, a bill with that instead of having to purchase food. And truly the cost has really gone crazy um, recently with the prices of food. Wow. Do you know how many people you've touched? since you started doing this and how many people have gotten some food or a bunch of food? Paula, I have no idea. I mean, we've been doing this for 10 years and, you know, last year we did like uh 4 million pounds of food and I can't, I mean, honestly, like to be able to count over the years, how many people have been touched and reached by that. I wish I did know, but what's so interesting is, I mean, we don't, you know, we, we keep track as far as, you know, where we go and who gets, you know, as far as, um, you know, where we stop, but we don't take note of how many people that feeds, you know, um, we just are guessing it by, you know, the poundage. Cause we have to have, you know, we have to account for every pound we bring into our warehouse and every pound that goes out of our warehouse. So we kind of, we do that. It's like, you know, um, for every dollar, like we can purchase $16 of retail food because we leverage it so well. Um, so, I mean, we're very late. Like if you look at all of our, um, our numbers and everything, we get audited, you know, every year and um, 96% of the dollar goes to what, to food, to goes to our uh, service of what we do. That's pretty incredible. We're very proud of that. That's incredible. Well, I know you guys are not living high on the hog. You're more invested and involved. <laughs> we are definitely not. Um, and that's okay, right? Because we're just, we're happy. We're content where we're at. And that's just a great feeling to be able to help people 
And, um, and our team, let me first say, our team is amazing. There is no way we could do what we do without the team that we have. And, and we're very a small, you know, organization as far as the number of people, like we have 12 uh, staff members and we're in Alabama and Florida right now um, as well with one gen. So we're actually taking that and wanting to replicate all around the country. But, um, but yeah, I mean, a lot gets done with those, you know, 12 people. It's amazing how much uh, we can do and we couldn't do it without our team and we couldn't do it without the volunteers. I mean, at every food distribution, it takes at least 75 to 100 volunteers to run a really good distribution. And um, and at our things, we don't even we don't even ask for signups. I mean, we just put it out on our social media. We put it out on our like mailing list, you know, that we have where we're going to be. And our volunteers just show up. We never know who's going to be there. And Although, Paul, that was like strategically for me, because I don't know about you, but every like book study I've been in or Bible study I've been in, you know, we'll be in a, a small group and they'll say, OK, here's your homework. And then if I didn't do my homework, I wouldn't want to come. Right. Because I'd be like, oh, I can't answer that. Well, then oh, now I haven't come. So now I'm really behind. You know what I mean? And you just kind of don't ever show up again. And for me, it's like I didn't want that because we would have never known that they signed up and didn't show up, but they would. Right. And so I just want to be like, hey, just come, just show up, you know, and every Saturday it just completely works out. God just completely brings in the people that need to be there and, and be. And they're so touched because you know we actually get to see the end user of that food and you get to actually talk to them and, and get to know them and you know, whatever, ask them questions and you'll find out that they're dealing with the same things you are. Yeah, it's pretty rewarding for that. How can anyone listening around the world get involved? I, we have a link to your website, which makes it easy. Uh, can they donate money? How can people start something like this? Say someone's listening uh, in Atlanta, say someone's listening in Charleston or or uh, in Orlando. How is it possible to maybe start the wheels in motion to put an outpost or just simply send $10? How can they do it? Absolutely. Well, um, on our website, it's onegenaway.com. Um, so when they go to that, there's a donate button. And um, and like I said, for every dollar, we can purchase $16 of retail food. But also, um, if people would like, you know, that to come to their, their town or, you know, they can reach out to us. There's an email on our uh, contact on the uh, website. And they can email us and we'll just come and, you know, check it out. And we're actually, it's interesting that you said that the places that you said, because we're going to start moving into um, to Atlanta and then to North Carolina. Like we're, that's where we're headed next. So it's interesting that you said that, but, um, but yeah, we're excited to, to be able to, you know, come there and do them. I mean, we would love to do it. We've done them in, um, I mean, we did it with, actually it started with disaster relief, you know, in Florida in Alabama, but it ended up that there's so much need that we just stay there and just keep feeding them. And it never gets old, does it? Because I was out there with you when we did it over there by the Fort Negley in Nashville. And you were and Chris were just as excited as all the newbies like me and the people that had just randomly showed up. Yeah, it's um it's incredible. I mean really it's so um it's just very, very rewarding. You know how it always says that it's better to um, give than to receive. And that's so true. Like everybody thinks that receiving the food that these people, and I'm not saying they are very, very grateful to get it, 
but for what it does to us being able to give it and our volunteers to give it and are there constantly. Um, it's just very rewarding. I got to say, no one was happier than me that day. I could tell. And, <laughs> and I was just handing it off and being a part of it. We have a great time. We have, you know, some volunteers that always, they love it. They show up every Saturday with us and, and, uh, you know, they're out there dancing and during the line, you know, the traffic and everything. It's just really fun. And we just get to go car to car and, you know, just help people, make them feel welcome and that, you know, to bring them honor and dignity. That's, that's what it's all about. How's your daughter doing after all those operations these days? Oh, thanks for asking. She's doing really She's 32 now. Um, she's doing great. She works part-time. She lives on her own on a disability grant um, that helps her to pay, you know, her rent. But yeah, she's doing great. She walks. It's miraculous. That's a whole nother story, Paul. It's a, it's a great, great story. But uh, it was a true miracle. Well, tell the story. You're on the show. The whole st- <laughs> Well, I'll give you the short version. Um so I was pregnant. I was four months pregnant with my daughter and um, we were going to get an amnio. I mean, I'm sorry. We were going to get the alpha theta protein test. And the doctor said, Hey, you want to try this test? And I'm like, sure, go ahead. Well, Chris was like, why did you do that? I didn't want to do that. Like, you know, we needed to discuss that. So we were kind of in an argument in the elevator. Right. So we get downstairs. I'm like, fine, I will call and, you know, and just get cancel that test. So I grabbed the phone. It wouldn't work. Thank God it wouldn't work. And so I'm like, he goes, just forget it. So we hang up the phone. Well, thank God, because that test came in. And if it's, if that alpha theta protein is high, it could be spina bifida. If it's low, it could be a chance of um, down syndrome and ours is really high. So the doctor calls us, our OB calls us and he's like, Hey, you know, you need to come in and get a, um, get a scan done an ultrasound to see, you know, if something's going on, but I'm sure it's not. There's just a lot of false positives, you know, and all this stuff. So anyway, we had to go in to see a genetic specialist first. And then so we got to see him and went and got the, um, he, he went through our, you know, our genealogy and none of it. We didn't have any of that in our history at all. So we went and got the test done. And, and all of a sudden this doctor who had written ultrasound books, he puts the paddle down. I'll never forget this. The words, he said, we've got a problem. He said, your child has spina bifida, and it's one of the, the worst cases I've ever seen. Your daughter has, uh, it's a, your child, we didn't know it was a girl, had five vertebrae opening, and he showed us. So what happens, I don't know if you're familiar with spina bifida, but it your your spine, come, like all these billions of cells come together in the womb to uh, form your spine. And for some reason, her stopped, and then this flesh the skin goes like a, a like a bubble basically around it, right? To hold hold that fluid and everything in. And so in that sack, he was showing us that day of those five vertebras. We counted them. She had severe water on the brain. Um, I had to do an amniocentesis because they weren't even sure if she was life compatible outside of the womb. Um, you know, and the 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 genetic doctor came back and asked us if we wanted to abort. And I'm like, there's no way, you know. So Anyway, we're talking about a huge just shock um, to our family, to us. Um, it was just the one of the hardest things I've ever gone through is those next, you know, six months. Um, but anyways, I, I just didn't want any other test. You know, we were just praying and believing God, you know, that she would be healed and um, and and just praying for strength. 
uh, just to get through those days, you know, and, and that to me, that's associated with anything, right? Like if you're going through some stress, you just, and issues like that of life and death. I mean, it's minute by minute sometimes, you know, I just got to get myself together and, and it's okay to cry, right? God gave us tear ducts, but you don't stay there. You pull yourself back up and go, okay, I can fight now. I can keep standing and believing, you know, for this. It's got, that's kind of how we did. And um, so anyway, she was born, um, she was born uh, December 21st of 1990. And um, when she, I had to have a C-section, so the C-section, you know, the defect was still there and they just rushed her off, you know, and she had to have surgery the very next day. And then to get the sack off of her back. And it was just miraculous. First of all, when they, when they um, did the C-section and all of these doctors are in there for neonatal and all these people ready to take her and swift her away, you know, and um, she comes out and the doctor's like, she's moving her feet. She's kicking her legs. Like it was just miraculous. And so they took her away, you know, cause they were getting ready for her surgery to take that sack off of her back the very next day. Um, the doctors, uh, you know, it, they, after the surgery, they said, um, those, this, the vertebrae that we saw in the sack are completely in place. It was just nerve endings and spinal fluid. And, and the, the, um, the big, large, you know, um, water on the brain, that's medically impossible. And it was just like gone. It was just minimal, minimal there, like to where her little soft spot was just soft. And I mean, was a little hard and that was it. I mean, it was such a miracle. It was one of the largest miracles we'd ever seen in our lives that we've experienced between that. And then Chris's cancer, you know, it was, um, it's, it's been a rough road, but boy, we've just, God's really brought us through it. So. Did you ever question God and like, why us? All right. That's enough. All right. First this, now that. Absolutely. It would be human. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's so true, but you know what? I, I really don't, I don't remember a time at all when I doubted God because, you know, I mean, and in the word, it always says that, you know, God, God gives us perfect gifts. Right. And it's like every good and perfect gift comes from above, but, and and there is an enemy out there. Right. So I just feel like that is what the enemy is trying to thwart us off of what our calling is, is to feed people. Now we know that. Right. So I feel like every little step of the way, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not afraid. Like God's going to get me through this. He's got us through so much, you know, going bankrupt and yes, um, you know, the surgeries, the, you know, my husband's cancer, just everything in between, you know, just the hard times of life. Um, he got us through it. So I really, I, I never blamed him at all. I just looked to God and it's something that Chris and I have always done in our marriage is we always, we don't blame each other for things like, oh, it's your fault you did this or your fault you did that, you know, because I'm a shopper, to be honest. And um, and Chris, he never once said, you know, well, you, you keep spending too much or whatever, you know, we're like, okay, God, how are you going to get us through this challenge, you know, and not because of my spending. I mean, that was just a little side note, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, just everything in life, we just look to God as like, you know, how are you going to get us through this? because the enemy's real. I mean, he's out, you know, and so we just want to be, um, you know, just do what God's called us to do. That's our goal. Do you have any fear of your own death? To be honest, I know I'm not supposed to, but not, I mean, I don't really have a fear. It's just that I want to be able to live long enough to see my grandkids have kids, you know? So I don't have a fear of dying because I know where I'm going. 
I just want to be able to live long enough to see my grandkids have children and then I'm good. (laughs) It's like, okay, God, I'm good. I'm ready. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.